It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 22nd of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Oireachtas Committee on Assisted Dying met once again yesterday. As with all of the meetings this committee has had so far, the session was engulfed by one of the hardest conversations any of us will ever have to have, that of our own demise. Testimony was given on both sides of this debate and at times yesterday, witnesses were were understandably emotional but it was the testimony of Brendan Clark from County Mayo that made most observers stop in their tracks. Brendan died in August. He had motor neuron disease and this is just a small part of what Brendan had to say to the committee by way of video that was recorded before his death. Good morning Chair and that special committee thanks for giving me a chance to speak to you. My name is Brendan, and I've got motor <laughs> And 10 months ago, I was perfectly fine. And as you can see now, I'm in a wheelchair and a rollator. And it's very difficult to live this life. It's not a life I want to live. But I would appreciate that at some stage, when all this committee work is done, that you might let it stay to give people like me, I won't be around by then, to have the choice if they want to, to avail of assistant time. Right, uh, that's uh, Brendan Clark. Apologies uh, for the sound quality of uh, that recording from the video that was played to the Oireachtas Committee on Assisted Dying yesterday. Very hard to listen to in many ways. Let's discuss this this Wednesday morning. Uh, and apologies uh, for my earlier error, but let's discuss this now with Ronan Mullen, independent senator, who's a member of that committee and staunchly opposed to ending life under any circumstance. I think it's true to say, Ronan Mullen, good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Did Brendan Clark do anything to change your mind when he said he was living a life that he 
didn't want to live. His demise was imminent and inevitable and he hoped that your committee would give people like him in future a choice if they wanted to uh, avail of assisted dying. Well, Michael, it is true that I have major concerns about what a change in the law necessarily might mean. Um, it isn't a question of being staunchly opposed to the ending of life in any circumstances. All our lives will end. Our lives will end uh, in different ways. And whatever is decided on this will indeed could affect any of us. It could be you or it could be me that has to deal with a, a difficult diagnosis sometime in the future. And we will have to think about how we deal with that. And hopefully we'll have the courage and the strength and the support from our loved ones to deal with it. And of course, our loved ones are involved as well. Uh, and, you know, while uh, certainly, you know, we knew this. Brendan had written into the committee and uh, it was agreed that we would uh, we asked him for, for, for to, to, to send this, to prepare this and, and um, last week it was actually due to be shown but there was a problem with the sound quality. So I suppose when you you know, as, as legislators we have to think about this issue we have to hear from everybody involved, we have to hear from those most uh, personally affected, whether it's people um, whether it's older people or whether it's people with disabilities or indeed whether it's people who may or might or have have coped with, with 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 severe illness. So you know it isn't like you know we're all kind of going along on a theoretical view, and then suddenly we're up against somebody's story. We're thinking about these things constantly. We're thinking about people that we love. I'm thinking about my own father, who had dementia for ten years, who would have not would not have liked the 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 you know the loss of independence. And then we often think he was it was a mercy to him that you know that he was that he was in that he had Alzheimer's by the time he became dependent on it. And yes, as I said at the committee, there was a lot of his life continued and there was a lot of love uh, and it brought a lot of love into our family, the whole caring dynamic and so on. So, look, these are complex issues. There's, mm. um, it certainly, you know, when you, when you hear somebody's story, when you hear somebody's distress, and obviously Brendan has gone, has mm. gone from us now, um, you, know, you, you know, I think it's a human thing to always say, you know, say, yeah, I need to think again. Yeah. Um, mm. what, 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 are my, what are my views? What are my values? Mm. I suppose to give each person kind of the respect of their testimony. But in fairness, there were actually two deeply personal stories. Heard yeah, yesterday. maybe we'll hear. Maybe, we, maybe, maybe we'll hear the other one now, Ronan. Before uh, we, be we, we talk uh, about yeah. uh, what you took away from it, because yeah. uh, you did hear from uh, another uh, witness yesterday. This is Emer McGuire who uh, spoke to you yesterday. Um, and I apologise if I'm a little bit nervous. Um, sorry. Four weeks ago, we buried the ashes of our beloved Uncle Jay. He was the youngest of 10 children and much loved uncle of 26 nieces and nephews. He would have celebrated his 60th birthday on the 21st of October. Jay died by euthanasia in Switzerland on Tuesday the 26th of September. He was in good physical health and travelled on his own to Switzerland. He was met there by Sean Davison, Director of Exit International UK. Davison's role in this is to manage all aspects of Exit's application assistance programme and ID programme. In essence, he ensures that the application to die is successful and identifies the body after their, their death. Prior to Sunday the 1st of October, no one in our family had ever heard of Exit International. 
The previous weekend, Che had spoken to his brother about the Ireland-Scotland rugby match. He'd arranged to meet his sister for a drink on the Saturday night of the 30th and had also told his nephew, coming home from San Francisco, that he would leave out a key for him if he wasn't home when he arrived on Thursday. When he failed to turn up to meet his sister and his nephew arrived at an unusually clean but empty house, both of them became worried about his well-being. Those closest to Jay were aware that he was struggling with his mental health and had encouraged him to seek help. However, he had managed to mask most of this with most of the people around him. In the weeks coming up to his death, he'd gone on golf outings to an Ireland rugby match and had chatted on the phone to a number of relatives and friends, none of whom had any suspicion of what was to come. Having notified family and the Gardaí, my cousin continued his own investigations into Jay's disappearance. He found a torn up piece of paper with a number on it, which he promptly rang. A man answered and when asked if he knew my uncle, he replied that Jay's sister would receive a call in the afternoon. After about 30 minutes later, she received a call from Sean Davison to tell her that Jay had died by euthanasia five days previously in Switzerland. And he was with him when he died and identified his body after his death. He had been cremated on the Sunday, on the morning of Sunday, the 1st of October, and his ashes will be sent to her house during the week. He went on to say that he was joyful on the day of his death and requested that his family not be notified of his death until after his cremation. Right, that's Emer Maguire speaking uh, to the Eruptus Committee on Assisted Dying, a member of uh, that committee, Ronan Mullen, on the line. Very difficult to listen to Emer Maguire as well there uh, and raising concerns about assisted dying, but telling us a story about something different, but she not a story about assisted suicide by the sounds of things. Yeah, I mean, in in it in the it's we have heard actually from the people in Switzerland who who are involved in in providing assisted suicide. That's uh, that's uh, dignitas, and we've also heard from Exit International, Tom Curran's organisation, which was uh, this was really a story of a family that was obviously that had some uh, a loved one, a very much a loved one who had mental um, health challenges, and uh, and then I suppose the availability of assisted suicide in another jurisdiction. He chose that, but they ended up then being kind of completely cut out of the picture and were unable to help and so on. I suppose the question I'm sorry I didn't ask Emer yesterday was whether she felt that the existence of euthanasia or assisted suicide you know, acted had 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 a kind of a pull uh, impact. You know, because obviously we're talking about an individual's life and death, so you don't want to get into kind of too much speculation about what might have happened at this or would there have been a suicide anyway or all of that. But you know, I think what's clear, um, I, I think the big picture coming out of that from her testimony, and I think this was very much brought out um, this week as well by the palliative care uh, doctor and nurse that were giving testimony yesterday as well, was that. We can't look just at this as a matter of individual choice. There is a there is a circle around each person of people who are impacted by 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 people's choices, and certainly last week from the College of Psychiatrists, I think it was Dr. Eric Kelleher. You know, when when asked like, well, supposing this is limited to people who have terminal illness, when I asked, he was quite blunt in the responses I recall to say. They think that other people with mental health challenges will get caught up in this. And when I asked the question yesterday, it, because what's very noticeable 
is when these doctors, the psychiatrists, and now yesterday the palliative care doctor, not when asked, what safeguards would you recommend? They're very reluctant to talk about safeguards at all because they don't mm. believe safeguards will work. Okay. And I think what they're worried about is that mental health gets drawn into it, or if you make it available, let's say, for somebody who has a terminal physical illness, mm. somebody else then can quite legitimately say, well, isn't my experience of my suffering as valid? And if I say I can't live anymore with my mental health challenges, mm. shouldn't you honour that? Can, so can I just that in- Pandora's box okay. being open. Can I just interrupt you for uh, a moment? Uh, because uh, I'm mindful that uh, there could be people listening to us uh, this morning who believe uh, that living is a challenge for them uh, as uh, we speak uh, this morning. And if there is somebody listening to us this morning who can identify with that, there's many organisations where uh, you can find really good assistance uh, to help you through a a dark period. And talking is always uh, the best thing. And you can speak to the Samaritans on 116123. I repeat that number, 116123. What your committee uh, has been asked to look at, though, Rona Mullen, is uh, as circumstances where somebody has a terminal illness. uh, Well, actually, that's not true. We've been asked to look at the issue more broadly than that. Okay, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't. You, you, you yeah. correct me then, uh, because I, yeah. that, that would be my understanding that you'd be talking about legislating uh, for assisting somebody to end their life at a, a time of their own choice under the circumstances where they had a, a terminal illness and where there was little time left. Uh, but that's not right, is it not? No, that was Gino Kenny's bill, and that's what Gino says he wants. Right. And, yeah. and and he's kind of saying, I'm, I want that limited strike. People like Exit International would say they want it much more. They want it basically, it's whatever the person decides. As we heard a stop. moment ago, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's what's available in Switzerland, for example, even though it's not direct euthanasia, it's assisted suicide. Um, but actually, no, the committee have been asked to look at the question of assisted dying and about whether or what recommendations to make for a change in the law. And you may recall, uh, some months ago, I, I was making the point that the, I felt the way it was worded was almost pushing us to words recommending for a change in the law mm. and we got it agreed at the committee no we might recommend against a change of the law but at no place in our in our remit are we to consider this just under the heading of terminal illness it's up to us it's up to the committee whether it wants to uh, um, recommend full-blown euthanasia for example where it would be directly done by a third party or assisted suicide or to recommend no change of the law and one of the things i insisted on um, uh, and others in fairness mm. at the start of the committee's work was that we would get to make or that we would would be clear that we could make other relevant recommendations and I think that's what the palliative care people are coming to and the mental health, the psychiatrists are coming to which is the need for um, greater surround care for people, not just dealing with potential terminal illness but with other mental health mm. uh, related illnesses as well because that's actually an issue because the, the question is, like the real argument for euthanasia or assisted suicide is based on the idea that what the individual wants if they are ill or even if they're not ill or if they're mentally ill or if they have depression is absolutely sovereign. Um, The argument against it is you can't have the person absolutely sovereign because First of all, we don't have the conditions to allow complete autonomy. When you have inadequate healthcare systems, for example, that can put, put that could have a pressure effect on people. When you have the potential of elder abuse or indeed some family abuse, that could cause people to be pushed towards making a choice once that choice is legally available. But there is also this issue that other people, I suppose, what they, what what it's not just me saying. What I think mm. our 
medical experts are now saying is that once this is on the table, if it's if it's lawful, everyone has to think about it, yeah. for or against it, and that is kind of like almost a is it was a Schrodinger's cat that the existence of it changes the changes the way everybody looks at the situation. I think what the palliative care people are trying are, are trying to get across is the focus always has to be on how you can overcome the kind of fear or fear of suffering and pain that causes people in some cases. For example, immediately after a cancer diagnosis, it's well established in the first six months. There's a there's a particular risk of mm. suicidal ideation, for example, if I'm not mistaken. But that can be dealt with as fears are addressed about how well pain uh, discomfort can be managed, how well relationships, you, you, do you know what I mean? The yeah. whole work of the hospice thing mm. depends on there being a positive attitude towards towards coping. And I, 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 I'm not sure, I, I, I'm not sure if you agree, but where, where and when people have been hesitant, uh, I think I, I took it uh, to be on the grounds that if we are all given a, a choice in when and how we die, uh, how do we stop one individual from feeling that they have a duty to die, that there is a yeah. pressure on them to die. Yeah, that's certainly an aspect of it, that, that people become vulnerable. Like I, I said yeah. yesterday at the committee that maybe we need to look at this through a health economics lens as well, because, you know, I kind of worry, it's certainly there's some evidence from, not sure if it was just Canada, I think it was actually Oregon in the United States where there was a particular situation where a person was, their, their cancer treatment wasn't covered by their medical insurance, mm-hmm. but the assisted dying was, you know. Um, and there is undoubtedly you know, a cold economic lens through which you can look through this issue. And the simplistic answer is you don't have situations like that and you put in the safeguards, but uh, the question then is, uh, will the safeguards be sufficient? And I suppose that is the job of work that you're tasked with uh, and to decide whether it can or cannot be done. But what uh, appeared clear to me yesterday was that when we provide palliative care in this country, it's done pretty well. But we don't provide palliative care often enough to enough people. Yeah, I think that's true. It, 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 it's established that it's very good where it is, but that there's, there are certain gaps in palliative care in parts of the country that still need to be need to be filled. And you know, we'll, you'll still you'll still hear stories of you know families who had wonderful support for their loved one who lives at home. We were reminded yesterday by the Irish Hospice Foundation that I think 70 or 80 percent of people would like to be able to die at home and um, that that it's, it's nowhere near that. Many deaths take place unnecessarily in hospitals because if, if kind of the person gets hospitalised after kind of a crisis event or so on. So, you know, there's much more that could be done in that area to ensure that people have the kind of care that they need in order to be able to die at home when their time for, for dying comes. And um, the I suppose the other thing I know from this, my own work in this area when I was on the Council of Europe, that... It, Palliative care can also people get a bit nervous about opioids, and you know because oh that means you're dying when that conversation happens. The palliative care people, and they're not just doctors or nurses and other caregivers. This is about emotional, socio, psychosocial, physical as well, uh, spiritual support, and not just when a person is dying, but actually when a person has a life limiting limiting condition. So people talk about palliative care is about helping people to live well until they die, and it's clear that the palliative care people in this country don't want to talk about euthanasia or assisted suicide becoming legal. They want to talk about ever more excellent um, support so that 
so that the fears can dissipate. And I suppose at the end of it, there is a time, and I know this happened to a loved one of my own, there, there is a time when a person comes to, to be in the late stages of illness when, um, and in fact, the, the palliative care people were pointing out yesterday that, you know, well-given pain relief doesn't actually shorten life, but it certainly uh, deals, deals with symptoms of suffering and ultimately, and including sedation in certain cases, you mm, know. Yep. And, and I think that's where the balance can be struck, you know. Okay. Um, I, I suppose this is what you're looking at. Uh, you'll uh, deliberate. Uh, on all of this over the uh, coming weeks uh, and uh, recommendations will be made and it may or may not result in a change of uh, the law and that may then be enacted or not as the case may be uh, at some stage in time in the future because laws uh, don't change very quickly as we've been learning Uh, and just to turn to a separate uh, subject and a recommendation to change the law 50 years ago or so uh, and how senators like yourself are uh, elected Uh, it it looks as though all graduates now will be entitled to vote in Shannon elections that's it. I mean, you rightly say, Michael, that was an excellent link, if I may say so, from one <laughs> issue to another. But, but yeah, 50 years ago, people passed uh, a referendum saying that the situation where Trinity graduates get to elect three uh, senators and NUI get to elect three, uh, that should be uh, widened out to include all institutes of higher education. That was never enacted in legislation, and the Supreme Court decided last year that it must be. So I'd say this coming election will be the last time that, uh, so let's say the constituency I'm in will have to change and I think what the government is going to do now is make a six-seater. But I often think of the, the, the story about the old man and was it Terry O'Connor who was asked the direction to Dublin by some tourists and he said, well, to be honest, I wouldn't start from here at all. You know, the idea in this day and age that graduates have a vote, but for example, my late father and my mother, you know, who went to college and had great experience of life and wisdom don't get to vote. I, I think that brings the Shannon into disrepute uh, still. So I, I'm, I'm a long time saying that what I would like to see is a complete vamp, revamp of the system, maybe a national list system where people across the country could vote for the, the set of ideas or values that they prefer. And, you know, kind of a balance with the, the more local representation that you have in the doll, you know. But uh, that's not what's on the table at the moment. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've probably been hearing, the Oireachtas Health Committee is sitting this morning. I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about this on the programme tomorrow because the head of the HSE, Bernard Gloucester, is in front of the committee. And to put it in basic, simplistic, short terms, whatever way you want to put it, I, I think the HSE is going to tell us that this is not a year to be sick in this country. The reason for this is because of a shortfall in funding and indeed the recruitment ban that has followed that particular position that the HSE finds itself in. Uh, A deficit, they say, of €1.5 billion. But yesterday, the government announced it was going to give the HSE an additional €1 billion for this year alone. Can you tell me, Taoiseach, does this additional funding mean that the government will now end the disastrous recruitment freeze for the health service? Thanks, Deputy. I'm I'm happy to clarify this. Uh, What was agreed by Cabinet today is a supplementary budget uh, for health of about a billion euros. That's for this year. Uh, The budget relates to next year. So the way it works is we have the budget in October um, then there's a rev in December, and you can do supplementaries. But supplementaries are for the existing year; they're not for they're not for next year. That's what the budget does. 
Nine, that's uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Bradker, responding to Mary Lou MacDonald. Uh, but didn't Mary Lou MacDonald have a, a different question that doesn't seem to have been responded to there? But the recruitment embargo? Oh yes, it was about the recruitment embargo. Indeed, that was an issue that was taken up later in the day through a Sinn Féin private member's motion. Uh, and it, in its motion, said that 7,000 posts within the HSE have actually just vanished and that nurses, doctors, healthcare assistants and allied healthcare professionals have emigrated to Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Britain and elsewhere and essentially they've been told to stay there. Don't come home to try and find work in the public system. And it's just extraordinary. It's, it's, it beggars belief that your government has put in place this type of recruitment embargo. And I have to put it to you that the reputational damage this causes for the health service when we have such a real difficulty in recruiting and retaining staff and getting the numbers that we need in, I think is, is breathtaking, Minister. I also have to put it to you that this is a very chaotic way to fund the health service. It's again unprecedented that the head of the HSE will have to essentially write a national service plan for next year with a built-in deficit. Your government announced today a supplementary estimate for healthcare of a billion euro, 500 million euro short of what the the, the, sec, the, uh, the head of the, the HSE has said is the deficit for this year. You know that it's going to be 1.5 billion. Uh, only 1 billion has been given, and that difference now has to be carried over into next year, including the hole that's already there because you haven't properly funded the health service. So whatever mess that you created this year is going to be even worse. Uh, or, or this year is going to be even worse next year. And Minister, uh, that's, that's on you. David Cullinan putting it up to the government and indeed the minister during the debate on that Sinn Féin motion last night. Sinn Féin's motion tonight is describing things as disastrous. To read the Sinn Féin motion and to listen to some of the contributions, you would be forgiven for thinking that there isn't a doctor or a nurse working in Ireland today, that they've all left the country and that nobody abroad wants to come here. The truth, of course, is very different to that. The truth is that babies born today will reach adulthood in Ireland where we expect to have eliminated cervical cancer because we have been hiring more doctors, more nurses, more health and social care professionals than ever before. We're in a position to achieve this ambitious target thanks to the incredible dedication of those working in our health service and the support of the patient groups. The truth is that we can provide new services for women and infants from new facilities because we have expanded the workforce. The truth is that the waiting lists fell last year for the first time since 2015 and they are on target to fall again this year because of record levels of recruitment for three years in a row. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, speaking to that Sinn Féin motion last night on health services, asking to end or lift, if you like, the recruitment embargo, suggesting to all of us that Sinn Féin is not right when it claims that what is happening between the embargo and the shortfall in funding is disastrous. The HSC has been hiring at such a pace that they reached their full hiring targets early this year. So, of course, having filled the posts that they are funded to fill, 
which is the third record year of recruitment in a row, at that point they stopped hiring. That's how it works in every school, every Garda station, every local authority, every business. You have money to hire this many people. When you have hired that many people, you can't hire more people. That's how it works. Yet the motion before us here tonight describes this approach as disastrous. Incredibly, the motion decries the mismanagement of the health budget, presumably a reference to the HSE spending more money than it was funded for because they treated a record number of patients. The motion decries the mismanagement of the health budget and then goes on to demand that the same HSE hire into a bunch of posts that they're not funded for. You can't have it both ways, deputies. Which is it going to be? Right, that's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, posing that question to Sinn Féin. And Sinn Féin uh, still was not happy. Indeed, locally, uh, TD for Mead West, Johnny Gurk, said there were a a number of problems that our listeners are experiencing here in uh, the North East. In my home county of Mead, the underfunding of health service by the current and past government had significant consequences. Navin Hospital serves as an example with years of underfunding by successive governments leading to the bypassing of its A&E department. Hospitals and healthcare organisations should be adequately funded to recruit staff directly instead of using agency staff, which costs more money in the long run. The impact of the embargo has been felt by both patients and staff. Urgent care is prioritised over routine care, resulting in increased waiting times and a strain on scheduled procedures. This could lead to the deterioration of patients' conditions. The burden placed upon hospital management and consultants is immense. They are forced to make difficult decisions, choosing between urgent and routine care. Prioritising urgent care may seem like a logical choice, but we must remember that routine care is equally important. It is a delicate balance that should not be compromised due to staffing shortages. Also affecting nurses, non-training doctors, health, social care professionals. And it's not just doctors and nurses that's affected, Minister. The embargo on administration staff. Look at the work they do, from answering the phone, organising organising patient clinics, organising medical records, organising bloods, schedule appointments, registering appointments, pay wages, purchasing supplies, paying supplies, and then you have cleaners, patients and partners. This embargo will lead to more risk for patients and lead to longer waiting lists. Thank you. All right, uh, Johnny Gurk, not convinced uh, by the Minister's assurances and indeed he sounds pretty concerned uh, about healthcare in County Mead in uh, the North East over the coming year. I think, as I said, at the outset, Bernard Losser is going to tell the Health Committee uh, this morning that this or next year uh, will not be a year to be sick in this country because of funding shortfalls. If you want to make comment on our programme today, you're welcome to do so. Our telephone number, as always, is 0419832000. And we'd love to hear what it is you have to say. Call us and tell us 0419832000. You can also text a comment or WhatsApp your comment. Same number, uh, depending on which way you do it. 0861800658 if you want to text or WhatsApp. 0861800658 or if you want to email us the address is michael at lmfm.ie 
Michael Reed on LMFM. A few comments into us uh, this morning already. Uh, somebody in touch with us uh, when we were talking about uh, assisted dying, uh, and uh, indeed uh, the clip that we heard of uh, Brendan Clark, who died of motor neuron disease, and uh, gave testimony by way of video to the Oireachtas Committee, and we played a clip of it, uh, saying that uh, it's very upsetting for families with someone who died from motor neuron disease to listen to. And I'm sure that that is the case, and I'm sorry that that is uh, the case. I I take it in your circumstance. It's a very difficult uh, conversation, all the more so when it brings it home like that to you. Uh, And as I say, I'm sorry uh, that uh, we have upset you this morning uh, by playing out that clip. Uh, But uh, I think that's the point of the Oireachtas Committee, that we face up to this best we can. And it's not difficult or it's not easy, I should say. It is difficult for all of us uh, to contend with and all the more so if uh, you're mourning the loss of a loved one. Deirdre in Kells, regular texter, says palliative care teams do fantastic work. Uh, they looked after her late mother uh, so many years ago. And she tells us that she raised €50,000 for cancer services. Well done, Deirdre. Thank you indeed for that. Another text about assisted dying from somebody who uh, calls it MAID, M-A-I-D, or a medical assistance in dying. I I take it uh, that's uh, how it's referred to in Canada because our caller, Carmel MacDonald, says the experience in Canada of introducing legislation to allow for MAID, no matter how limited it is, demonstrates that it will inevitably expand due to successful legal challenges by individuals or groups to include their right to choose, i.e. the logical progression and reality of it. The human experience of losing the will to live is very real and needs to be countered with practical and emotional supports and the message of where there is life, there is hope. E.G., Carmel says, the annual event from darkness into light. Thank you very much, uh, Carmel MacDonald, for your WhatsApp message to the programme as well. Another uh, text or WhatsApp message uh, from somebody who says, uh, Michael, I worked in the NDTP, the National Doctors' Training and Planning. And last year, before the recruitment freeze, we were short over 3,000 doctors. So he's full of it. Uh, I take it our caller is (laughs) referring to the minister, Stephen Donnelly. Uh, uh, I don't want to give my name because I'm still working in uh, the health service. Uh, The NCHD, uh, the junior doctors, are trying to beg doctors to come back to Ireland. Uh, The process to recruit doctors takes around a year and they have to be CAC approved. Thank you indeed for that. I must admit I don't know what CAC approved means, uh, but I take it it is one of the obstacles. But thank you indeed for highlighting that to us. I wanted to bring you one other text as well that came to us yesterday. I didn't get to it uh, from Mag Y about uh, the ongoing conflict in Gaza. And she says regarding Iran's Hamas, the elite hierarchy of Hamas are living in secure five-star accommodation, not in Gaza. Islam does not allow girls and women to be schooled or educated. However, the elite Hamas leaders have their daughters in very expensive private schools and universities around the world. The good Palestinian people in Gaza are being brutally used by Iran's Hamas. Thank you, Mag. Why? Uh, we'll have more discussion on uh, the Israeli 
uh, Gaza conflict, Hamas conflict later in the programme. Indeed, there's a, a debate on a motion on that in the Dáil underway as we speak. If you want to make a comment, though, 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, all roads lead to Park Equive for Dairy Farmers tomorrow with the Irish Farmers Journal Dairy Day being held there. Let's hear a little bit about what's in store for those of you who may be going to Cork. Aidan Brennan, Dairy Editor with the Farmers Journal, is on the line. Good morning, Aidan. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. It's a long and packed day, uh, if ever it was uh, the case for anybody who will be attending. Tell us a little bit about the event, if you would, please. Yeah, so look, it's, it's, it's a great day, I suppose, for dairy farmers. It's a combination of trade stands. So we've over 70 trade stands decked out already in, in Porky Cueve, that deep in the bowls of the GEA Stadium there in Cork. And we also have two stages that are operating throughout the day uh, with really, I suppose, informative talks going on each of those stages um, from 9am, well, 9.30am until about 3.30pm. But the whole day itself will, will stay open until about 5 o'clock in the evening. So action packed. People can come and go uh, as they please among the different uh, discussions that are taking place, but also to the trade stand. So it's a combination of, of um, you know, in, a, a business day, I suppose, mm. meeting exhibitors, um, getting prices for, for, for products and goods and services, uh, which is important this time of year because farmers are, you know, gearing up for next spring now shortly. And uh, so it's an opportunity for them to, to, to meet people that maybe they haven't met in a few years because of COVID-19. So this is the first yeah, time we're yeah. we, we very day back. Uh, uh, and many people at that, you're expecting thousands to uh, attend uh, this uh, event in Cork. And I'm sure many of them who will be attending will be telling you, uh, as you very well know, how difficult it is uh, to uh, continue in the industry. But there will be sessions on how to find ways of cutting costs. Mm, absolutely. So milk price has fallen by 40% now compared to where it was this time last year. So it's a massive drop. Never before have we seen such a drop. And that's really affecting farmer profitability. So I know the Chagas predictions are that profit will be back uh, over 50%. I actually think it'll be, it'll be worse than that. And um, really, the only, the only item that's in farmers' control is to reduce costs because we can't dictate milk price. So we have a session there with Sean Cummins. He's a dairy farmer from, from Kilkenny. Uh, he's actually a low-cost farmer. So he's going to share some of the tips and tricks he has in order to reduce costs. He's there with his wife, Roisin. Uh, we also have Joe Patton from Chagas, uh, Monhan Man, and he's, he's going to discuss, um, you know, the Chagas perspective and how and what are things we can do to cut costs. But it's not easy. I mean, that's the first thing to say. A lot of these costs are driven by, you know, record high inflation. And um, But I suppose, look, it's, the, the mm. onus is back on farmers and the industry to come up with solutions to this. So that's why we're discussing it. Yeah, I suppose you could argue that one of uh, the way uh, dairy farmers uh, could cut costs is by buying fewer cattle or having fewer cattle for that matter and reducing uh, the national herd is something we've been hearing a lot about uh, in recent times because farmers and in particular dairy farmers are destroying the planet. You have a very bad image, don't you? Well, the, the, among certain cohorts of people, um, they, they believe that, you know, but in reality, like what farmers know on the ground is that they're custodians of the environment and they're producing food for people to live on. So, you know, a very important function. Without farmers, we wouldn't have food, we wouldn't have human life. But we are discussing uh, those issues uh, at Dairy Day tomorrow in, in Porky Creeve, and one of those is on the, you know, what can farmers do on the ground to improve the public image of dairy farming? So, Janine Kennedy, who, who writes for the Irish Country Living magazine, which is included in the Farmer's Journal, is joined by Zoe Kavanagh from the National Dairy Council. 
and two dairy farmers, Caroline Hanrahan and Shane Fitzgerald, who are, I suppose, ambassadors for dairy farming. And they're going to go through what they do on their farm, mm. so for the public to see, but also their interactive interactions with the general public, whether they're family members that are from a non-farming background or friends, um, in terms of how they promote dairy farming as a career, as a lifestyle, um, and I suppose just as, as, an, as an activity itself. So I think there's going to be really, you know, interesting mm. discussion there. Ta- talking up the sector, uh, but also acting uh, to reduce uh, emissions. Uh, an aer- uh, I can never pronounce it, uh, anaerobic digestion. Uh, you'll pronounce it correctly. Anaerobic digestion. Yeah. Yeah. I beg your pardon, uh, It is often cited uh, as the way of reducing emissions, and you'll have a special session on that. That's right, yeah. So Stephen Robb... Uh, even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Our, our renewables editor is having this discussion with Morris Easy from Chagas and David McDonald from from Green Gas and our own Declan Collins is joining on, on that panel also. And I suppose, look, for, for me and, and for a lot of farmers, there, there's a little bit of scepticism around the, the role that anaerobic digestion, digestion can place on, on, on dairy farms. Uh, so that's going to be discussed there. You know, I mean, on the face of it, it, it sounds very positive, but I think farmers will be looking for the nitty-gritty detail on how this is going to actually benefit them on, the, on their own farms. So that'll be trashed out during that session. Okay, and speaking of technology, uh, you've got dairy dragons in the milking pit. I'm reading that off the page. Perhaps you'd explain it to us. Yeah, so it's a kind of dragon's den meets uh, a milking parlour. <laughs> um, look, this is uh, it, it's the first time we're doing this type of thing. It, 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 it suppose it, it's um, we've got four companies that have a pitch to, to five of our judges, and the judges are all dairy farmers. They have um, uh, 50,000 um, to spend, you know, uh, pay for 50,000, I should say. So it's not it's not a real 50,000. And they have to allocate that funds to those products that they feel are going to deliver for them in terms of work-life balance, sustainability and return on investment. So it's a bit like Dragon's Den, um, but rather than buying into the company, in this case, the judges are buying the product. So we've got four really innovative companies that are um, displaying their products there, um, such as Dairy Master, Lily Robotics, 
Uh, we have um, um, Orbi, uh, the the third Nutritech product, also. So look, I mean, I think there's it's 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 a new thing we've, we're we're doing at the Erie Day. It mm. rewards innovation, and I think farmers are very interested in what role technology can play in terms of making their lives better and increasing profitability. Okay, and you'll also be asking what might be an impossible question: How different will dairy be when we get to 2030 at the end of this decade? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's changing the whole time. Uh, we know that. We know the road we're on. Um, but I suppose the question is, how fast are we going to get there to our destination, which is, you know, increasing sustainability? Lawrence Chalou, who's the head of dairy um, research at, at Chagask, and Mick Houlihan, who's, who's the head of uh, sustainability at Borbia in terms of the dairy, dairy sustainability programs, are going to be discussing this journey that, that dairy farmers are on. And we'll we're, we're be joined by dairy, by dairy farmers also, and um, look, we're going to see what kind of a vision we're going to have for dairy in the years to come, because there is, as you alluded to earlier, there's huge uncertainty around cow numbers, nitrates, uh, greenhouse gas emission targets. So there's a lot of pressure on dairy farmers at the moment, and that's going to be reflected at Dairy Day tomorrow. But it's also, uh, you know, we're going to be exploring the issues, and I suppose maybe hopeful that um, farmers will go away with a little bit more confidence in the sector than they had going into it. Okay, well, it sounds like a, a must-attend for all dairy farmers. Tomorrow in Parky Cueve starts at half nine. There's a breakfast briefing before the event at half past eight, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing much from Cork tomorrow. Aidan, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning to tell us a little bit about uh, the Irish Farmers Journal Dairy Day in Porky Cueve tomorrow ahead of uh, the event. Aidan Brennan, Dairy Editor with uh, the Farmers Journal. Now, thanks uh, to Margaret who was uh, in touch sending us a, a WhatsApp message saying, Michael, we need to take notice of the documentary made about assisted dying in the Netherlands. The name escapes me of uh, this uh, documentary. I, I remember distinctly though, uh, an older consultant, when asked should Ireland introduce it, he said, you might remember the name uh, of uh, the documentary, Michael. I, I, I don't actually, Margaret, uh, I don't think I've seen it actually, uh, but uh, thank you indeed uh, for bringing that to our attention. Uh, I imagine somebody else uh, will help us out with that, or I hope somebody else will if they can. Uh, our telephone number is 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. That's if uh, you can give us any more uh, information about that documentary on assisted dying in the Netherlands, or indeed if you want to make comment on something else you've been hearing uh, this morning, or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, somebody else WhatsApping saying, what about the big factories it's always back to the farms and you'll never stop nature but it all seems to be about money thanks uh, for that uh, indeed uh, another text uh, then that uh, comes uh, to us uh, from Anne Carrie who tells us that she received a voucher on Facebook she got a message on Facebook to say that she had won a voucher uh, for a store uh, which I think uh, would be familiar to most people. I'm not going to name the store, and if you don't mind, um, but she says she got this voucher in a private message on Facebook saying she'd won €250, Euro and she's just checking to see if it is real or not. I'm really glad that you did text us, Anne, because it's the kind of thing where most of us um, would go, wow, I don't believe it. What is, it's less than a month to Christmas now, or just over a month to Christmas now. Uh, and €250, Euro, wouldn't it be great 
what do, I think the first thing you have to ask yourself when you get something like that is what, what do you have to do to get the 250 euro? If you have to click on a link, you can forget about it. Uh, that, that's for sure. Uh, you, you can make sure that somebody is looking to clean you out to take 250 euro off you or however much you have in your bank account. Uh, it sounds very, very suspicious. I would imagine that it probably is not true uh, and I would imagine that you should ignore it. But having said that, I don't know. And if you are looking to find out is it real or not, pick up the phone and call the shop and ask them. Uh, and always verify things independently. Don't use the link or the message in the message. Call the shop or call your bank or if it's a message about your bank and your bank account, don't click the link. Google AIB or Bank of Ireland and look there. Check your account on uh, your bank's website or whatever it is. In this case, it's claiming to be a voucher worth 250 euro. I think not, Anne. Uh, I'd love to think it is, and I'm sure you would. Uh, but ring the shop and ask them. Uh, have they uh, 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 promotion on like that? Uh, it, it sounds uh, as though uh, somebody's trying to scam you. And be very, very careful, uh, especially when you get messages uh, on prompted like that uh, to accounts on the internet. But thank you, Anne, for bringing that to our attention because uh, it made me stop and think about it. And I hope it makes other people stop and think about it. And if you got it, I can guarantee it lots of other people got it if it's a scam. Now, our phone number, as I say, is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you get 12 penalty points, that's it. You're off the road for six months at least. Well, that is, as I think I understand it, and I imagine most people understand it. 12 points, that's it. No car, no uh, licence as such. Uh, you're not allowed to drive for six months. Uh, but the Irish Times reported yesterday on a loophole in the law. It, it quoted Section 28 of the Road Traffic Act and that provides that where a person admits or is convicted of a penalty points offence and an ancillary disqualification from driving order is made in respect of them, then penalty points shall not be endorsed on the affected person's licence. It also quoted Section 28 of the Act which does not specify any minimum period of disqualification for an ancillary disqualification order. And such an order is discretionary, not mandatory. It is up to the individual district court judges to decide whether to grant an ancillary order. They also then reported on how drivers with seven or nine penalty points uh, appear before courts because they've failed to pay the fine uh, that they were uh, sought, that was sought from them in a fixed charge notice. Uh, they go to court, then they plead guilty, uh, and they're convicted of uh, the crime, if you like, and face the prospect of 12 penalty points and off the road. But in a small number of cases, Drivers or their solicitors, if you like, on their behalf, have applied under Section 28, this uh, part of the law which is discretionary, not mandatory, and is up to the individual court judge, uh, for an ancillary disqualification order for a very short period. And it is a very short period. It's of one day. 
In other words, you would be disqualified for one day instead of getting the extra penalty points. And the next day, you'd be back on the road with the nine penalty points or whatever it was that you had before you appeared before the court. Not only that, but you might be able to select the day that you're disqualified for. So you could say to the court, can I be disqualified on Sunday? Uh, Because then I'll be able to work on Monday and won't uh, affect my job. Now, that was bad enough. That was the Irish Times yesterday. Today, the Irish Times is reporting uh, on a solicitor who availed of that particular loophole uh, for a novice driver who ended up being banned for one day, uh, as I've just explained, rather than the six months. This is after this novice driver drove through a guarded checkpoint without stopping. And the solicitor has defended this by saying he's doing his job. Uh, He said that uh, the novice driver didn't deserve to be put off the road for six months. Let's speak to the founder and chairperson of PARC, the Road Safety Group, Susan Gray, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Susan, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. I suppose the solicitor has a point in this story today in saying that his job as a lawyer is to circumvent and find loopholes in the law. The legislation is there. He didn't create it. It was created by greater minds than his. Uh, would you agree he has a point there's a flaw in the law Michael there's so many flaws in the law and um, when I did a presentation last Thursday to the Ministerial Road Safety Committee I was invited by Letitia Radka and um, Jack Chambers I had many points and one of the points I put to them that it's like for 15 years we've been constantly told by the government that they were going to consolidate the road traffic acts, put them all into one, because there's so many. There's a road traffic act almost every year, and there's so many um, pieces of legislation, amendments overlapping other pieces, that it's so confusing. And it lets, it makes it so easy for solicitors to find loopholes and get their clients off in court when they shouldn't get off. So um, I put it to the teacher that day and Helen McEntee and she, or, um, Jack Chambers and Paula Hellman, the heads of the roads, policing, and Eamon Ryan, they were all there. And I put it to them, look, it's 15 years. You just keep saying you're going to um, consolidate the road traffic acts. And yet nothing's been done. Every few years we're told the same, that it's a massive job, there's so many acts, that it would take a lot of time and a lot of people to consolidate it to make it easier to understand. But at the same time, Michael, they would, while they were doing this, they would recognise and come across loads of these little loopholes, or they're not so little, but, and correct them and put them into one bill now. Letitia Leo Bragg, he chaired the meeting last Thursday. That's the first time Letitia has chaired a ministerial road safety committee meeting in 10 or 12 years. So, number one, that shows you the importance. He's thinking about, you know, the increase in road deaths. Mm. And uh, 
He was Minister for Transport that we worked so well with in 2011 to 2014. So he's got the history. He knows. And he decided to chair it, and he asked me to speak at it. And he said he's going to have another um, meeting in six months' time, and he wants updates. Now, isn't it a crying shame that the teacher of our country felt the need that he not only had to attend this Road Safety meeting with all the high ministers and mm. road policing, head of road policing and the court service and all were there, that he felt the need he had to go and chair that meeting to ensure that things were going to be done. And now he's organising another one for updates. But um, he put it to Jack Chambers at the meeting, at the end of the meeting, that he wants a head of the bill next year for the consolidation. That's a massive step forward. Mm. He says, we'll be back here in six months. And I want the head of the bill. This has been going on far, far too long. So situations like you've seen in the Times yesterday and yeah. today, that will close these loopholes. Well, now, Minister Chambers said it'll take a long time. The AG may need more staff and all this. But, Michael, the more there's a new act every year, so the longer they leave it, the more co- complicated this is going to be. Okay. And I also pointed out to them, like, this is only the tip of the iceberg, these mm. stories about uh, these articles on disqualified drivers. As I've told you before, and I told the committee, that our research shows that only 6% of learner drivers are surrendering their licences to the RSA. Mm. Only 18% of uh, fully licensed Irish driver holders. They're only 18% of them surrendering their licence. Mm. Now, some of the questions we had put to the Tisha in our letter in August, we brought them up. That's why he invited us last Thursday. He asked uh, Helen McEntee and Jack Chambers to reply to all my concerns and give them an update. Now, Helen McEntee, our Minister for Justice, said, on um, driving people being disqualified. And I quote, currently there's no procedure in place whereby the RSA automatically informs the Gardaí where a licence has not been surrendered. So these two mm. top stories yesterday and today in Irish Times, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Well, it, it is because people are, are driving after they've been disqualified. It's just that the guards don't know that they've been disqualified, as you say. But in this case, this young lady uh, uh, avoided being disqualified because they've only told half the story. Uh, it really is an incredible loophole, as uh, one opposition TD said. It makes a mockery of the law. But it's the story of Emma Farjardi Fard, who was before Nace District Court just last month. She's 21 now. Uh, and the offence goes back to 2021. Uh, let's not forget that she's a novice driver, which means she's on her first full licence. Uh, but when she was driving in 2021, she didn't have a full licence. She was a learner driver. And she drove through a guarded checkpoint without stopping as a 19-year-old learner driver on a learner permit, which brought her before the court last month, which would, uh, as we would understand it, uh, resulted in her being disqualified from driving. But the judge 
uh, was asked to consider reducing the charge to a, a dangerous driving charge using this uh, section of the law to disqualify for her for one day uh, and all of this because she had a very good job in the Cliff House Hotel in Waterford uh, and has now uh, improved her driving skills for, by going from being a learner to a, a novice driver uh, and that would put her off uh, the road uh, which would give her the mandatory five penalty points. It really is an ass. The law is an ass, that is, isn't it? It's a making a mockery of road traffic law, Michael. That's all it's doing, making a total mockery. When people can get off so easily on a loophole like this that a solicitor has discovered. And these solicitors are representing these people. Uh, I, I don't know how they sleep at night. I really don't. But we also brought up, or I also brought up at the meeting, uh, the issue of learner drivers rolling over their impairments forever and ever, and that the Irish Times had reported last month that up to 30,000 are on the third or subsequent learner permit, and they never have to such a test. All they have to do is um, apply for the test in order to reissue mm. a permit. And the teachers. Minister Chambers, where was it at changing the legislation? Because I had reminded them all that in 2013, RSA put it onto the road safety strategy that by 2014 they'd make it mandatory for a learner to actually attend and set their test. And on failure, they'd be renewed. They would have a renewal of their learner permit. And that 10 years later, it was still nothing's happening. But why Why do so, people not sit their tests? Explain that to me, Susan, because if you have a, a learner permit, you must be accompanied by a fully licensed driver. Yeah. And if you're driving on a learner permit, I mean, there's little point to it. I mean, you you're, you don't have the independence yeah. of being a, a driver. And if you're stopped at a, a guarded checkpoint, and let's not forget this story about this 19-year-old learner driver who drove through a guarded checkpoint without mm-hmm. stopping. Uh, but if you are stopped at a guarded checkpoint, um, they can take the car off you, can't they? Yes, and we see week in, week out, the guards on Twitter and Facebook advertising that they had detected hundreds of learner drivers driving unaccompanied. They're seizing the vehicle. Uh, the learner driver or their parents or helpers paying the 125 release fee. And a lot of them, you see the guards advertising a lot of them two or three weeks later, they're catching them again. So the clancy law is not working. And the guards are out there trying, trying to take these learners off our roads and... It should be encouraging them to go and do their test. Are they driving, though, without fully licensed drivers accompanying them? Yes, this is if you watch social media, the guards are never off it, saying um, they've caught so many drivers driving unaccompanied learners and uh, they've seized the vehicle. And uh, a couple of weeks later, they say, same driver, caught again, caught three weeks ago, driving on a company, vehicle seized again. They're not that that law sadly is definitely not working. And we told the teacher that and the committee last Thursday. It's not working. What we believe as the 
authority ensured that learners couldn't get sent out a clear message, you cannot renew your permit until you sit the test. Mm. It would encourage a lot of learners out there to practice more lessons, practice good attempt at sitting the test, and a lot of them will pass. Then there's no need for them to be accompanied, and it's a lot less work for the Gardaí. They wouldn't be out catching so many unaccompanied learners. And we put it to the committee as well that the backlog in the driving test, there's so many months and months for a driving test. And yet um, the figures we got show that four to 500 a month are simply just not turning up for the test. These are not cancellations. These are not people that ring and cancel mm. and then the, the tester can uh, reallocate that test slot for somebody else. These are people that just don't turn up. So four to five hundred a month, right? Yeah. Now, these slots are lost. Learners that are anxious to do their test will not get them slots. They are gone. And the examiners, which a lot of the time it's wasted, hours and hours, um, sitting with him on this tester. So mm. we put it to them that the backlog will they'll uh, manage the backlog and bring the waiting time down a lot quicker if learners were encouraged that they have to actually turn up. Mm. And they're putting proposals on, Michael, since 2013, then 2019 to Shane Ross, or the RSA put on more proposals for how to tackle this loophole that they're aware of since 2013. And they're the single licensing authority in charge of this and uh, the proposals are going nowhere. Mm. And Minister Chambers said last Thursday, they're working on it. Yeah. Uh, and still it, working it, on it. if they don't sit the test, you want them put off the road. Do you think that's harsh? Uh, and the reason I ask you that is because uh, that's uh, what the solicitor in this particular case at uh, NACE District Court said to the Irish Times. He, he said actually he's uh, managed uh, in about 10 cases to have the disqualification uh uh, introduced rather than the points so that somebody's put off the road for a short period of time, sometimes just one day, uh, and then they can go back driving rather than being off the road for six months. Uh, and that in this case, the judge applied his wisdom and his experience. And he said, after reviewing the probation report, uh, the judge uh, should uh, use that experience and that in this case, she should be given the chance to do well, not lose her licence, that it would be draconian and harsh not to give her that chance. How do you respond to that? It's just heartbreaking to hear what you're saying. But as for the learners, if they had to sit their test, say after their third, they'll get the second one without sitting the test, the third and subsequent one. And sure, they have to sit the test. There's no other country that allows the learners to roll over and roll over their permit, Michael. None. And as for this novice driver, the judge made his decision and... I go back to the legislation and the consolidation of the Road Traffic Act. If this was all sorted and tightened up and worked on, they would notice. Transport and their officials and the AG would notice all these loopholes that's on there. And I'm, I've no doubt there's loads of more that aren't even reported on mm. where solicitors are getting their claims off. Okay. All because the Road Traffic Acts are far too complicated. 
There's amendments after amendments every other year, and they're overlapping other. It is a total mess, and until they consolidate, these sort of things will keep on happening. But we have great faith in our teacher, Leo Verker. He took a stand now. He's actually chaired the meeting last week. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've had the worst year, four years. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And we believe that he will, he understands, and he's massive compassion and empathy. He will see this through. He will ensure that the ministers actually do what they say they're going to do, because mm. we keep reminding, we have facts and figures of dates and years going back, and the same thing being said in 2014, 2016, and the government are letting us down, and people are dying. More and more people staying in our roads. There's 168 now. And a lot of them is young people under the 25 years of age, just starting off in their life. It's just mm. so heartbreaking. But we have to have faith in somebody, Michael. Yeah. And we're putting our faith in our T-shirt. Okay. Well, time will and tell if he'll <laughs> give up to your confidence in him. And... Uh, Let's hope that is uh, the case, Susan, for that matter, because it is a matter of life and death. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Now, Michael, before I go, there's also a problem with mutual recognition of disqualified drivers Mm -hmm. um, between the north and the south. In the research, we we, um, found out that um, the RSA is taking people to court here that's been disqualified in the north, and the mutual recognition can get them disqualified here as well. But very few are being disqualified. We, I asked last Thursday for them to copy best practice in Northern Ireland. Okay. They have a different way of doing it, a much simpler way. And Minister Chambers has written to us and assured us that, oh, he's written to the teacher and assured him that they're looking at um, um, best practice in Northern Ireland with a view to changing that they're doing a review. Mm-hmm. and we never like the word review, but the teacher will keep hold of us, we have no doubt. And okay. if they see, and they will see, the best practice in Northern yeah. Ireland, it's far easier, that if they copy it here, mutual recognition of disqualified drivers too will be fixed. There's so many issues with disqualified indeed. drivers yeah. okay. that we have to tackle. Right, thanks, Michael. Thank you very much indeed, Susan, as always, Bye. indeed, for joining us. Susan Gray, founder and chairperson of the Road Safety Group Park. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'm not sure how well I explained it to begin with, but don't ask me to explain it again. But it does seem like some people are very annoyed at how the law has allowed for a 19-year-old learner driver to drive through a guarded checkpoint without stopping, resulting in her accumulating what should have been enough penalty points to disqualify her from driving for six months to be disqualified for one day and to continue driving despite our understanding of the law. John Conlon in Ballymckenney says the law is a total joke. When she went through the checkpoint, was there a qualified driver with her? If so, the qualified driver that was with her should have been banned also and not for just one day. Thank you indeed. Somebody else has... 
uh, a different take on this, saying that the one-size-fits-all approach to learner drivers is not working, that the age of the learner needs to be looked at uh, as well. Uh, Somebody else then uh, touch on WhatsApp saying, Michael, the problem with the amount of people dying on the roads is the amount of people using iPhones. Phones, that is. The amount of people that seem to be texting and talking on their phone is just mind-blowing, our caller says. Uh, another text uh, from someone who says our son was stopped in Cork with a provisional licence and was fined €480 Euro and seven penalty points. Uh, is it uh, worth driving unaccompanied? Uh, Paddy Duffy in touch saying if a learner driver is found driving unaccompanied by a full driving licence holder, uh, I'm fairly sure their insurance would be questionable. Interesting twist on it uh, as well. Uh, another call from somebody who says, Michael, secondary roads are being used as rat runs and drivers know that the chance of being caught speeding is very unlikely as there are no speed checks. More detection vans is the only answer. Changing speed signs, it's a waste of money. That's a Navin listener. Thank you indeed. Another text uh, that came to us from somebody, I wasn't sure I understood it completely. They say they went to court. I presume it's to get their licence back uh, in Carrickmacross. The sitting was in Monaghan and they got their licence back Uh, but three days later a court clerk put in an objection and they were back in court the next week and the judge took the licence back from them Uh, and is uh, there anything in the law that uh, allows them to do that? Uh, Can you ask Callum McEntee uh, our caller asked well I'm sure the judge knows the law better than you and me Uh, and I would imagine that the minister might even bow to the knowledge of the judiciary but thank you indeed uh, for your comment. Uh, Another text then on dairy farmers uh, from somebody who says tell that individual from the Farmers Journal that farmers will have to get rid of their dairy cows sooner or later they have to wake up and do their bit for climate instead of destroying it. Thank you indeed for that. Now as we speak a motion is before the doll calling on the government to support Palestine in many ways. It would result in sanctions on diplomats uh, including the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador to Ireland. Uh, The Taoiseach was asked yesterday uh, if the government would be supporting that motion this morning. Uh, We'll be proposing uh, a counter motion uh, or an amendment to your motion tonight uh, in that we will deeply deplore the catastrophic humanitarian situation in Gaza, including the death of over 11,000 people, almost half of them children, uh, as as a consequence of Israel's military actions in Gaza. We will condemn the barbaric acts by Hamas uh, on the 7th of October in Israel. Um, We will also specifically condemn the killing of children and civilians. We will raise our very deep concerns about violence in the West Bank, particular settler violence against Palestinians. Uh, We will note um, that investigation is being carried out by the prosecutor of the ICC uh, and the additional funding that we provided for the ICC and uh, uh, add to our call uh, for all hostages to be released. Um, Your own motion, Deputy, while you're very welcome, of course, to put it down, doesn't mention at all uh, Hamas or 
the uh, human rights uh, abuses committed against Israeli citizens and we think that's an omission uh, and that's why we can't support uh, your motion and why we've put down our, our own one. That's the Taoiseach saying the government has tabled its counter motion to the People Before Profit motion. We'll speak to People Before Profit next. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. So we've just heard the Taoiseach say the government doesn't believe that what happened in Israel, the killing of uh, 1,200 people, the killing of children and the taking of hostages is so insignificant that it doesn't merit even a line in the People Before Profit motion. The motion went before the Dáil today and as you heard, the government has tabled its counter motion which is what is going to be voted on. That debate is underway. Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South West, has just stepped out of uh, the chamber to speak to us. And a very good morning to you, Paul Murphy. Will you be voting in favour of uh, the government's counter motion? Morning, Michael. No, definitely not. I mean, what the government's counter motion does is it removes all of the proposed action uh, that our motion suggests. So our, our motion says that there should be sanctions against Israel, both uh, trade sanctions and sanctions against you know, political representatives of the Israeli government. For example, the ambassador should be expelled. Our motion says that the use of Shannon Airport by the U.S. military should be immediately uh, ended and then inspections should uh, take place um, in terms of the possibility of weapons being transferred to Israel. Our motion says the government should act under the Genocide Convention, by which it has obligations to act to prevent genocide. Um, And the government's counter-motion simply deletes all of those things and says nothing other than words. Um, And that's the problem, is that the government, you know, has done a better job than many European governments at having words of criticism of uh, Israel, but it absolutely refuses to take any action whatsoever. And that's simply not good enough. Do you accept the criticism uh, tabled by Leo Vradker that your omission, uh, uh, as he, he would see it, to condemn Hamas for the killing of 1,200 people uh, is just a step too far? I don't. Uh, I mean, if you listen in the clip there with yesterday, I was in the door when he said it. He, he, he strongly suggested that this, the fact that we didn't condemn Hamas is why the government would be tabling a counter-motion and why they couldn't support the motion. I mean, firstly, that's just not true. Um, if that was the case, their amendment would simply have added um, a condemnation of uh, Hamas um, as opposed to deleting all of the actions. If that was true, then they would have voted for last week's motions from Dems and Sinn Féin, both of which, which did condemn Hamas, but again, they opposed them because they involved actions, taking Israel to the International Criminal Court, expelling the ambassador and so on. Um, the reason we, we didn't include it is not because we support, of course, we oppose the killing of civilians, the taking of civilian hostages. It's not because we politically support Hamas. Of course we don't. But we reject this whole narrative which suggests that history started in the Middle East on October 7th Mm. and the cause of everything that has followed was the attack on October 7th. It's a narrative designed to justify the genocidal assault on uh, Gaza. Mm. So we, we just do reject that narrative and we insist on saying it didn't start on the 7th of October. There was significant number of deaths this year before the 7th of October. Mm. But you do, you, you, do what, you do condemn what happened on the 7th of October. We, we were opposed to it. We're against the killing of uh, innocent uh, civilians. Um, there's no question about it. Okay. But we, we, we don't... Um, we, we think that th- this is used to suggest, to really justify, and it was attempted from the start, 
to create the basis for, oh, this like absolutely horrific, barbaric thing happened. Mm. Therefore, Israel is justified in killing more than one in 200 of the population in, mm. in Gaza. And that's okay. what, what's been taking place. Okay. Uh, your uh, motion is very long, very complicated as well. Uh, you talk about uh, uh, the international or putting in an international arms embargo on Israel and uh, ending the bilateral trade in arms uh, with Israel. Uh, and there's much to your motion that has to this point, up to this point, not been uh, discussed uh, very widely. Uh, but are, are, are you um, shooting yourself in the foot, cutting your nose off to spite your face by being so critical of the government uh, as was the case at the big rally in Dublin last week with marchers condemning uh, the party leaders and the parties saying shame on you when it is one of the most vocal governments in the world against uh, the Israeli regime. But I, I think the only reason they are vocal to the extent that they're vocal is because they're under pressure from below and um, is because they don't want to be so out of step with the Irish people who are overwhelmingly on the side of the of the Palestinians. But I think everywhere we have to push for more. So I, I thought it was like really scandalous that last week not only did the doll not vote to expel the Israeli ambassador, but that Michal Martin, as tarnished, uh, acting on behalf of the Irish people, went to Israel and participated in what was effectively a propaganda tour by Israel designed to justify their assault on Gaza. And um, he seemed to make no attempt to visit Gaza, or if he did, he was blocked by Israel and then didn't go public uh, on that. And I, that, that is just simply not not good enough. Okay. Uh, and I think the Irish government gets away with kind of looking good on an international stage because of how bad others are and because of the very broad support of the public. But I, I think it's important just not good enough. You have to act in the face of of genocide. Paul, I have to leave it there because our our time has run out. Thank you indeed for taking time out of Leinster House Business this morning to speak to us. Paul Murphy, before Profit TD for Dublin South West. That's it for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.